This week we are talking about the phrase crucified, dead, and buried. We're talking about the cross. And the cross has become quite the symbol. Think about it. How many people do you see wearing guillotines around their necks? How many electric chairs do you see painted in artwork or on church buildings? What about nooses other than NASCAR garages? Why is the cross such a popular thing these days? What is it about the cross that even those who don't claim to follow Jesus recognize it as something special? Last week, Kirk spoke about Jesus Christ suffering under Pontius Pilate. The final end of that suffering was crucifixion on a cross. That cross, that crucifixion, was the beginning of a revolution. Something happened that day that changed everything. The disciples knew it. The first Christians knew it. I believe that we have somehow lost the sense of what really happened on that Friday 2,000 years ago. So let's see if we can recapture some of that today. The cross is a life changer. N.T. Wright tells the story of a priest whose life was changed by that cross. When he was a young boy, he t well, the priest told the story of three young boys who used to go into confession. And, when they, and they would confess the most horrible, lurid sins, having a good time, and then they would run out. Well, one day, he, two of them got away, he caught the third one. Took the third one in and said, I'm going to impose penance on you for your sins. Had him stand before the cross with Jesus on it at the front of the church and said, I want you to say three times, you did this for me, and I don't care that. And snap your fingers. The young man did it the first time. Got through the second time. The third time, he dissolved into tears. He couldn't finish. And as the story goes, the priest said, I know that because that young man was me. That's the power of the cross. The early Christians obviously believed in the power of the cross. Now, they were mocked by both Jews and Gentiles. We read in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. To the Jews, the idea of a crucified Messiah was a scandal. It was a mockery of their dreams of a kingdom. And, of course, it was foolishness or madness to the Gentiles. There was a cartoon drawn on the wall of the Palatine sometime in the first three centuries after Jesus' death. And it depicted a figure with a donkey's head hanging on a cross. And the inscription read, Alexamenos worships his God. Of course, making a mockery of Jesus' crucifixion. It would have been very easy for the early Christians to tone down the cross and emphasize the resurrection. In fact, there were some who did that. 
the Gnostic Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Thomas, doesn't spend much time on the cross. They kind of take it out of the picture and they reduce Jesus to a wise teacher. There are even some who do that today, not wanting the founder of their religion to appear weak. The cross, however, is central to our faith and our vocation as children of God and citizens of his kingdom. Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that death is what motivates and empowers us. So let's go back to the first century to look at the context in which the crucifixion finds its meanings. The first context is the world of that day. The Greco-Roman world was a violent world. The gods were violent and wrathful. It's in this world that Jesus died. And it's in this world that the gospel was spoken. Crucifixion was one of the most horrible things thought of by humans. If you've ever seen the movie Passion of the Christ, it gives you an idea of what it was like. I think it was much, much worse because probably the movie would have been rated NC-17 had, had it been depicted. Um, cross was not a word that was spoken in polite Roman society. You wouldn't find any Romans going around wearing crosses around their neck. Philippians 2.8 tells us that Jesus died even the death of the cross, implying he even went that low. The crucifixion was designed to kill in the slowest, most painful, most degrading way possible. It was considered the lowest point that a person could reach. It was reserved for slaves and traitors. The victims could sometimes linger for days before dying. It was not designed to kill quickly. In fact, I've seen uh, evidence of, that just was fairly recently uncovered that some people were crucified not with their feet put together on the crossbeam, but with their feet on either side and a nail driven through that way. Because the whole idea The whole idea of the crucifixion was for the person to slowly suffocate, basically, painfully suffocate to death, along with the fact that the birds would come by and sometimes peck out the eyes, other things, while the people were alive. So it was not a quick, painless, nice way to die. There were people who were actually taken down from the cross alive. Josephus rescued one of his friends who had been hanging on the cross for like six or seven days because he was still alive. It was not uncommon for large numbers of rebels to be crucified alongside the roads leading to a town. In 71 BC, there was a slave named Spartacus. Yes, Spartacus really was a real person. He and 6,000 of his followers were crucified along the Appian Way leading into Rome. 
There was one cross every 40 yards. Jesus himself, as a boy, probably saw many crosses alongside the roadsides in Galilee. All of the disciples and Paul, as well as many of the people hearing the gospel, would have been quite familiar with the horrors of the crucifixion. Crucifixion was also designed to lift up Rome and to tear down essentially everybody else. When Pilate put the king of the Jews above Jesus' head, he didn't mean that he thought Jesus was a king. He was making a mockery of this idea of a king of the Jews. He was sending a message. This is what we think of. This is what I think of your king and you. This is what we do to other kings. Crucifixion had a social meaning. It degraded a person. It had a political meaning. It also had a religious meaning. Not only were the Romans stating that they were superior and that they were in control, but they were also saying that the goddess Roma and Caesar, who was considered the son of a god, were superior to the gods of the locals. So Pilate was saying, Roma is better than Jehovah, than your God. So how did such a scandalous, horrifying execution come to be accepted in the Roman world? Well, the idea of someone dying for someone else was very well known to the Greeks and Romans. A lot of their plays, a lot of their writings had examples of someone dying in the place of someone else and taking their punishment. So that's one reason why this particular meaning of the cross as Jesus dying for us was so quickly adopted, at least by the Greeks, by the Gentiles. So that's one thing. The second context is the Jewish world of the time. What was the greatest festival to the Jews? Passover. Passover. Yeah, that was it. They always looked back to Passover. That was huge. It commemorated the Exodus, the time that God broke the power of Pharaoh and freed his people from slavery. Many of the first century Jews believed that they were still in bondage, even though they were back in the land, because they were under the heel of Rome. They were looking for a new deliverer to come. Many were looking for a great event that in some way would be a combination of the Day of Atonement and the Passover, with liberation and forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah had spoken of a new covenant. And some of them believed it was near. Think of Simeon and Anna in the temple. Others were wondering if it would ever happen. Of course, the Jews did not believe that this coming Messiah was going to suffer. There were some, though, who believed that Israel itself would have to go through an intense suffering before being delivered. So there was that idea that a time of suffering was coming. The third context is the world of the first Christians. Ask someone today who claims Christ what their hope is. They'll probably say, going to heaven when I die. 
ask a person or ask what keeps a person from going to heaven and they'll probably say sin. In contrast, now I'm not saying this is a bad thing, it's a good thing, but in contrast, the hope for the first followers of Jesus was the new heavens and new earth and their place in it. And sin is what keeps us from taking our place in the kingdom and being genuinely human. Not just sin, but the idolatry that's underneath it. See, back in the Garden of Eden, Adam, and we can't totally blame Adam and Eve because we would have done the same thing. Humans have given their God-given mandate and power over to idols, over to Satan, over to the powers of this world. And the power of those idols must be broken. Sin is what keeps us under the power of those idols. It's continually choosing to turn to the idols instead of to God. So sin has to be dealt with in order to release us so we can truly worship God and be renewed in his image. We get a little bit of a, an inkling of this in Matthew 16. Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. That was an area where all, a lot of the different gods of Rome and even some of the old pagan gods from Palestine were worshipped. There was a cave that had a spring that would come rushing out. And the water was so deep and so strong that you couldn't go in because you would drown and the bodies never came out. The locals saw that as the gates of hell. That's where the gods lived. That's where the principalities, the powers, came in and out. Uh, if, uh, Kirk, a, few, uh, a couple of months ago, touched about a teacher named Michael Heiser who believes that the nations were given to the certain powers, the sons of God. And they were all over Palestine. The different tribes had their own different gods. Jesus, when he is there, he I think he picked Caesarea Philippi as the place to make the announcement he did. When he asked the disciples, you know, who do people say I am? Then he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, yes, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's standing right in front of the gates of hell. And I believe he's telling the powers there, the idols, it's time. I'm here. I'm taking it back. Setting in motion all the events leading up to the crucifixion. So sin, that power of the idols, had to be dealt with. So we can see that what happened on that Friday a couple of thousand years ago was world changing. It truly was the beginning of a revolution. Now this revolution, however, was not one that came with a sword. In fact, Jesus told Peter, put away your sword. I guess I have to hold on to it, don't I? 
kingdoms at that time had rulers who had absolute power over their, over their subjects at the point of a sword. Jan and I have been watching a um, documentary on Netflix of, uh, on the Roman Empire. Those guys were brutal. They held absolute power over their subjects. We just finished the one on Caligula. Dude, it was whack. But it was all at the point of a sword. The reason people obeyed him, other than maybe they could get a little more power, was because he killed them. They were the rulers. Their subjects were the servants. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, is ruled by serving the subjects. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And those who follow him are to serve and give our lives for others. Now those Jews who believed that there would be intense suffering before the liberation were correct. What they missed was that Messiah was going to be suffering in Israel's place, taking on the consequences of their sin that they couldn't bear. That was a major stumbling block to them because they didn't have the idea of a suffering Messiah. I believe that is still the stumbling block to the Jews. Because the early Christians believed that Jesus suffered for them, and that suffering inaugurated the kingdom. The Jews said, no, 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 our kingdom is going to be different than that. Because of what the early Christians believed, they believed that their own suffering somehow was doing kingdom work in bringing Messiah's victory to bear. Paul said that our suffering fills up what is incomplete in Christ's suffering. Now, I don't begin to know what exactly he meant by that. I know he didn't mean that Jesus' death on the cross didn't finish the work, but there's some way in which our suffering fills that up, maybe makes it more real to us. I don't know. When Jesus commissioned his followers to announce repentance and forgiveness of sins to all people, they believed that he was telling them to go announce that a new reality, forgiveness, is here. And the way to that is turning from the idols, repentance. We've been given the task of telling the world that there is forgiveness. God's forgiveness for those who turn from their idols and forgiveness offered by Jesus' followers to those who wrong them. Forgiveness is seen by many as a sign of weakness. And we see that all over the place today. But it's really a powerful thing. Back in 2006, man walked into a school full of Amish children. Shot, I don't know how, I don't know how many but shot a bunch of them and killed them. Then turned a the gun on himself and killed himself. The Amish in that community, while they were grieving, in the midst of their grief, came alongside the killer's widow and comforted her and told her that they forgave him. And, and they ministered to her. That's forgiveness. A more recent example, even closer to home, down in Charleston, 
when the kid, I won't call him a man, when the kid walked into the church and killed those people, point blank, and they got on tape, spoke to him, and said, we forgive you. You notice, after that happened, Charleston did not have the same violence, definitely not to the same degree that the other cities are seeing, because the gospel was there. The power of forgiveness was there. It's a huge thing. That's what we're to announce. We have forgiveness. The other thing that we have because of the cross is the freedom to love and obey the God who made us. We are no longer under the boot of the powers. We've been set free to become who God created us to be. That's one reason Paul says that if a person is in Christ, new creation has begun. That's proof that the new creation has begun its here. The gospel is the announcement that the world has a new king. And we are summoned to give him our allegiance. And the reason why the gospel has power is because it's true. Jesus really did defeat the powers that had held humanity captive. The idols that were broken when Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, can be summed up in three of the gods that the Romans and the Greeks worshipped. One is mammon, or money. Second one is Aphrodite, or sex. And the third one is Mars, war, or power. The crucifixion freed us from those idols along with all the lesser idols under them. Let's look at how this shakes out for us 2,000 years later. Mammon. It's hard to escape the hold that money has on the world. One reason is you can't really do a whole lot without money. You have to use it to buy almost everything. A large percentage of the decisions that people make, especially at the higher levels, is driven by money. And it's not hard to see that things are completely out of whack when it comes to money. I read that 25% of the world's wealth is owned by the amount of people that would fit on a city bus. Now, money is a complex issue. It's obvious that the political entities don't have a clue, don't have any solutions. What would it mean in this area? to announce the forgiveness of sins and the breaking of the powers. For most of us, it probably would mean that we don't worry about money as much, that we're generous in giving to others, or that we live simpler lives, that we don't chase after money. For some, it may mean working directly with the poor in their neighborhood or in another part of the world. For others, it may mean working for debt relief for poorer countries or other similar policies. For all of us, I think it means announcing and showing that there's a better way to live 
that pursues God rather than wealth. The second goddess, Aphrodite. Sex sells. All you have to do is look at the commercials on TV or in print. Even the, the even the car commercials, the local car com commercials. I mean, they don't have babes and bikinis and all that stuff. But look at who's doing the advertising of the great deals. They're all good-looking blonde women. I mean, <laughs> it's still sex sells. And vulnerable people have been sexually exploited for millennia. But it seems as if it's worse today. Maybe it's just more well-known because we have instant access to information. Now the world around us is telling us, for instance, that sex without marriage is okay. And even among married folks, serial marriage is normal with a high divorce rate even among Christians. Things that wouldn't have even been thought of not too long ago are now being touted as a way of exploring our sexuality. And no one seems to want to say that a person's sexual desire must be resisted. What would it look like to announce and live as if the idol of sex was defeated? Well, first, we must reaffirm the scriptural teaching on sexuality. If we really believe that Jesus won the victory over all the powers, we must proclaim that the heart of that victory is forgiveness of sins for those who repent, who actively turn away from the idols that they have been worshiping. And the third god is Mars. War, power. Power is very appealing. From bullies in school, to gangs in the cities, to nations attacking other nations, to dirty tricks played by political candidates. The struggle for power is all around us. One of the quickest ways a candidate can get a particular group's support is to promise them a certain amount of power and favor. The first part of Lord Acton's famous saying, power tends to corrupt, is true because earthly power is under the control of the idols. Now the gospel redefines power. The cross embodies the true power. All earthly power is just an imitation. The power of the cross is the power of self-sacrificing love. It's the power, Paul calls it dynamite, that created the world and is now remaking it. All other power is just a distortion of this. Because we serve the King of Kings and we're bringing the good news of the kingdom, we are to be willing to speak truth to the powers that be. We are to speak against those idols that hold people captive, whether it's money, sex, or power. Our calling is to confront people with a different vision of kingdom a different vision of truth, and a different vision of power. As Jesus spoke to Pilate of a kingdom not from this world, we are to speak the same truth to those still wrapped up in the kingdoms of this world. Now, I don't want to forget the other part of this phrase in the creed, because it's important as well. Jesus died. He didn't just faint 
only to be revived later in the tomb. The Roman soldiers didn't have to speed his death by breaking his legs. The Pharisees came to Pilate and said, we need these guys off the cross because the next day is the Sabbath. So, you know, hurry their death along. They had to break the legs of the other two so they would suffocate quicker. Jesus was already dead. They didn't have to touch him. He was buried. Everybody knew it. The Romans set a guard at the tomb to try to prevent a grave robbery. I don't need to give you a spoiler alert because I think you know the rest of the story. To close, let's think about what this means personally. How do we live in the light of the crucifixion? First, I think we must see what happened on that cross on that Friday afternoon did change everything. Through Christ's death, we are forgiven our sins and we will spend eternity with him. But there's more. Because of what Jesus did, the idols we once gave our worship are defeated. I, I was saying uh, to Kirk and, and, uh, and Brett and Buzzy yesterday, I think part of the problem with the church is we have for a long time preached the gospel of accept Jesus into your heart, your sins will be forgiven, you'll go to heaven. And we forget about living here on this earth, how we're supposed to do that. So people get the idea, well, we can do just about anything we want. We can follow the ways of the world and so on because we're going to heaven. It's more than that. The powers that we once gave our allegiance to are broken. We are set free to be the fully human ones that God created us to be. Why would we want to go back into those chains that once bound us? We have a vocation to fulfill as a royal priesthood. We are representing God to people, representing people to God. That's our vocation. That is our calling. We are to be a people that love God with every fiber of our being. And love those around us as Jesus loved us. Our message is the prison doors are open. The chains have been loosed. The true king is now ruling. And he calls all to follow him and be citizens of the everlasting kingdom. How goes the world? The world goes not well. It's a mess. But the kingdom comes. Let's pray.